Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Get in the Mode podcast. Our guest today is Eric Floor. He is the Senior VP of Transformation at Berkadia. Eric has a great consulting background with Deloitte and has been at Berkadia for six years. We are super excited to talk to him about some of the initiatives at Berkadia and also learn more about his approaches and strategies for transformation. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you. So Eric, uh, tell us a little bit about your background, your role in uh, Berkadia, your current role there. Absolutely. So I am the Senior Vice President of Transformation at Berkadia. Part of my role is to help our company define our digital transformation strategy and then coordinate across our various corporate functions and business units to execute on that strategy, as well as report out on our progress. I also oversee our involvement with the startup community in commercial real estate, which is commonly referred to as PropTech. We have a startup accelerator with a number of promising companies that have solutions which we believe will be of great value to either Bricadia or potentially our clients. We work very closely with them to test their products, provide straight unvarnished feedback, facilitate introductions to other potential users, and really just try to help them become successful uh, as they grow their business. I also own a lot of our relationships with venture capital firms and other key players uh, in the commercial real estate and prop tech space. Prior to joining Berkadia, I spent seven years as a strategy consultant at Deloitte Consulting. I also spent about a year working for a family investment office, which was making investments in emerging markets. Got it. Uh, so tell us a little bit about Berkadia, you know, so for our audience, so they understand the background, you know, what you're involved in. Absolutely. So Berkadia is a commercial real estate brokerage, and I want to put the emphasis on the word brokerage. We do not own or operate property. That's a very common <laughs> misconception uh, that some folks may have. And what we do is we help make sure that our clients can successfully execute a capital event for one of the properties that they may own or they may wish to own. That could involve working with our investment sales space to help sell a property they currently own. Uh, it could involve working with our mortgage banking group to provide financing for a property they wish to acquire. Or should interest rates move, uh, we can help them uh, refinance and gain a more advantageous uh, loan than what they currently have. Yeah, so in that space, you know, with this new economy that we're seeing, right, uh, you know, how is digital shaping commercial real estate, CRE overall, and perhaps you can also talk a little bit about the mortgage brokerage space, how, you know, where this is all going, you know, what are you seeing? It is having an enormous impact. Traditionally, the industry was very siloed and very paper-based. Transactions take quite a while, and there's also an enormous number of participants who are involved in the transaction. That led to information being exchanged through emails, PDF attachments, phone calls, uh, and really lengthened the amount of time it took to do a transaction. With some of the new digital capabilities that have emerged, you're starting to see a couple of things happen. One, you are starting to see much more electronic information sharing and digitization of information. Arcadia's worked very closely with a number of our uh, lender partners, as well as some industry associations to put in place some data standards, which would allow things like the appraisal to start to be transmitted electronically, as opposed to being solely in paper-based form. Due to regulations uh, and requirements, we still do have to have the physical 
appraisal. However, we've gotten to a point where because we're sharing some of that information electronically, we can begin to consume that information before the document would be completed, meaning we can further advance parts of the transaction. We're also able to seamlessly flow that from the appraisal firm to Bercadia onto one of our lender partners. It just makes the overall transaction much less, uh, have much less friction uh, and much faster. You're also starting to see in the cases where we still have physical documents, the ability to digitize those much more quickly. So Bercadia has been using some technology which allows you to take the rent roll and operating statements, which for non-real estate listeners would be the equivalent of your income statement for a business. And you can use technologies to digitize those very quickly and then feed those into your valuation model to do the valuation. Previously, that may have taken up to four to six hours. We're now able to cut that down to about 20 to 30 minutes using technology. You're also seeing a huge investment and data and analytics. Previously, the way the industry operated was that you might be able to work with a mortgage brokerage firm that could get you more advantageous terms or a better loan. You're starting to see the commoditization of the financing, meaning you need to find different ways to differentiate yourself. One of those is obviously speed and efficiency. We can get the loan done faster. The other is we can actually help you make better decisions of where you might wanna buy a property when you might want to dispose of a property versus potentially refinance that property and really use that data and analytics to have more fact-based decisions as opposed to going with rules of thumb uh, or just be dictated by uh, some information that maybe one particular party in the transaction has that influences a decision that you might want to make. Yeah, there, there's a lot going on in that, like what you just uh, you know said. Um, do you think this COVID has kind of spurred this or has it always, you know, kind of been in the back of the mind? I mean, traditionally mortgage brokerage firms, CRE is seen as in the, you know, crossing the chasm, kind of more on the laggard side of, you know, things. Do you feel like this, you know, this COVID event has spurred this? Like, tell us why now, like all of this? You're absolutely right. Obviously, COVID has been a tragic event uh, that's had a lot of negative impacts to both individuals personally as well as the broader economy. However, it has spurred a need for commercial real estate companies to think differently. Got it. Let's just take one example. You want to rent an apartment. Prior to COVID, most likely you would do some research online, call a phone number that you found for a particular property, be connected to the leasing agent, coordinate schedules, show up at the property, the leasing agent would give you an in-person tour, and then at the end of the tour, try to pressure you to sign the lease on site. With COVID, that's not really possible. Now, they're not comfortable meeting someone they don't know, potentially even going to an environment where they're not comfortable. And so there's a couple of different options. One of those options is you're seeing a much greater willingness to actually sign a lease without actually physically visiting the property. That's hard to believe. Yeah. Uh, there were some surveys done two, three years ago where the number of prospective tenants who were willing to do that was pretty close to zero. You're now seeing over 50% of tenants would be willing to sign a lease without actually setting foot on the property. You now have very high-end virtual tours. You can have a leasing agent actually go around and do the tour with the phone, answer questions. You can sign all the paperwork digitally online. For individuals who still want to see the property, but maybe don't feel comfortable having a leasing agent walk them through the property. You're starting to see things like facial recognition, self-guided tours, people able to use their uh, iPhone or cell phone to get guidance on how to go through the property, see the amenities. These are things which have never would have happened 
prior to COVID. What you're finding, uh, and some of our, our owners and operators are finding, is that particularly with these self-guided tours, the prospective tenant is actually spending more time on the property and more time exploring than what they would if they actually had a leasing agent. They're much more comfortable standing in the apartment saying, oh, the sectional would fit well here. That mirror would fit well in this part of the wall. We could put this piece of furniture over here. Those are discussions maybe they weren't comfortable having with the leasing agent. We're finding some of our owners and operators are also putting out food, snacks, beverages, and really creating a nice welcoming environment. And they're finding that individuals are actually spending more time yeah. <laughs> thinking about what it might look like. And then they can follow up very quickly electronically after the tour and say, hey, how did your tour go? Here's a lease if you want to sign it. Um, and again, those are things that just never would have happened prior to the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think it certainly spurred this and you're, you're talking about the new digital capabilities that companies are building to pivot, to accommodate the change, right? To support and, you know, you know, let's take a step back in general. I mean, you talked about your industry in general, what sort of digital capabilities are companies building, you know, in, in, the, in the course of this transformation, right? In, sure. I would put them in a couple of different buckets. I think first is the willingness to transition from print marketing to electronic marketing. Uh, believe it or not, a lot of the times when we're selling a building, the focus is still putting together a PDF document yeah. that we email around with the intent of using that PDF document to get someone to actually physically visit the property we're trying to sell on behalf of the owner. Right. You're now starting to see questions. Do we actually need that document? Mm. Maybe we just need parts of that document. We can actually put more of it on a website. We can make it easier for people to consume electronically as opposed to having a PDF document. Perhaps we actually put very high-end tours of the property on the website that eliminates the need to either visit the property so early in the process or maybe even eliminate the need to visit the property entirely. You're also starting to see a lot of investment into digitizing documents and a willingness to actually share that information electronically. You know, I shared some examples around the appraisal, the rent roll, the operating statement. There's a enormous number of documents that need to be consumed as part of a commercial real estate transaction. We've only started to scratch the surface of if we still do need that uh, PDF copy, can we actually digitize it without human intervention? Or can we actually skip the PDF copy and start sharing that information purely electronically? Uh, another area you're seeing a huge amount of investment into really is analytics. And how can I bring in publicly available information about maybe the economic growth rate, the average income, for a particular market, a submarket, blend that with property information that either the seller or the property owner has, and then potentially supplement that with some alternative data points, maybe coming from Internet of Things devices around the quality of the HVAC system, the likelihood of the need of capital repairs. Can we supplement that with information that might come from credit agencies about the average income of a tenant in that property, the average debt level, what types of debt a tenant has? and really have a much more holistic view on how's that property performing today and a fact-based analysis on how we think that property might perform in the future. Believe it or not, a lot of analysis that has happened in the past were when we're projecting future performance on a commercial property, we use some rules of thumb. Now, generally, rents in this uh, particular market or submarket grow by X. Expenses generally go by Y. That doesn't account for Maybe some of the equipment's very old and you're going to have a very expensive repair. Maybe 
uh, this particular property is not representative in the entire market and submarket and either is positively um, influenced or maybe negatively influenced relative to the market. That information historically has not been available. And so now that that information is becoming available, you can have a much deeper insight into the property, its potential performance, how it would compare to other opportunities you're evaluating, I think make much more effective investment decisions, but also make much more efficient investment decisions. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Now, you know, going back a little bit to your Deloitte days, um, and you know, in obviously big consulting firm, you being a transformation specialist, and that's your background, and you know, you, now you're leading that uh, initiative at Berkadia. It, you know, do you differentiate between scale and growth for companies? You know, where do you think digital really helps? You know, that's a great question and not an easy question to answer. Uh, the way I would look at it is going forward, I think digital is going to be a key driver of both growth and scale. I also think that growth or sorry, that digital can actually help you grow through scale. And if you think about particularly an industry maybe like consulting or an industry like commercial real estate where we have a lot of variable based compensation for our sales staff, what you end up having is yes, you're able to grow your top line in absolute dollar terms. You can grow your bottom line in absolute dollar terms, but your margins actually don't change that much. Right. Because you know, you're a human based uh, industry. And so for every additional dollar of revenue, you need additional support to actually support that. I think technology can help you both drive the top line, but it can also help you drive that through scale. And so what you end up having is a situation where you're actually able to positively influence your margins because you now have an individual who maybe in the past, if you're an underwriter, could do eight to 10 deals a year, now might be able to do 12 to 14 deals a year, and then five years now might be able to do 16, 17, 18, 20 deals a year. And that's just an example where I think because we're eliminating a lot of the manual data entry we're able to have systems that now communicate with each other. We're able to much more efficiently route data and information and communication through the company. We're able to eliminate that and, and actually increase employee satisfaction as well, because I don't think there's too many people who get up in the morning excited about manual data entry uh, or forwarding emails and documents and attachments rather than saving them to their hard drive. I do think people get really excited about how do we solve problems? We have a borrower who's got an issue. How do I help them address that at their particular property? How do I get this deal through? And what we're doing is we're eliminating some of that lower end work through technology and allowing our people to spend much more time on the value add part of their jobs, which not only adds to the bottom line, but also drives the employee satisfaction. Yeah, definitely. Um, now, oftentimes, so let's say companies realize the role of digital, you know, they're on this transformation programs or journey, you know, you'll have dependencies with client technologies or vendor technologies, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what are some strategies leaders like you can adopt to work with those dependencies and continue to move the needle on, on your programs, right? Uh, you know, what, 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 do you, what are some strategies you've adopted? What, you know, what would your advice be to folks, uh, leaders who are doing this transformation work? Absolutely. I would say the first thing is make sure you have a really good understanding of the problem you're trying to solve and the outcomes you're trying to generate. One of the things I found is there's a lot of really good vendors out there, a lot of really good solutions. Oftentimes, there are solutions in search of problems. It's very easy to get wowed by a demo, get very excited, look at the capabilities, 
go down, and I've done this myself, so <laughs> I have to confess, go really deep, and then realize either before you sign a contract or maybe even some cases after you've signed the contract, oh, wow, this actually doesn't solve the problem we thought it would solve. And so I think the first step is internally knowing, you know, what are we actually, what's the problem we're trying to solve? What's the outcome we're trying to generate both qualitatively and quantitatively? And then let's actually go look for either solutions internally or potentially externally that could help us address that issue. And again, there's, there's some great products out there. And sometimes even if they meet 95% of your need, that last 5% just isn't enough. And if you're not looking really critical and really deep at it, you know, you can go down a very expensive rabbit hole that you then have to course correct from. Right. Secondly, is once you feel you have that good understanding, is I think you need to understand, is this a skill set or a capability that we potentially need to have in-house for the long run? Or are we comfortable working with a group that can come in, implement the solution, either we handle it uh, post that, or we may not need that support going forward. There's a, a sometimes a tendency to look external first, which is fine, uh, uh, pull in a solution, implement it, and then realize, oh, wow, if this vendor goes away and we need changes, we need modifications, we're constantly going to be calling them back. We're at the mercy of their time. We're at the mercy of their schedule, their fees. Uh, and then if we ever do want to make a change, we, we've got a, a really difficult situation. I also think companies need to put their process re-engineering first mm -hmm. before the technology solution. It, it's also a mistake I've made many times of, you know, hey, we got to fix something. Let's just put some tech around a current process and we'll fix the process later. Technology sometimes can almost codify existing processes and make it very difficult to actually change those processes once you put tech around it. And you're also really shortchanging yourself if you're not taking the opportunity to look holistically at a process, redesign that flow first, and then find the technology to put around that um, yeah. to actually deliver the value you expect. You know, that's a great point about process engineering. You know, a lot of times you, you don't want digital to enhance a bad process, right? You, right. you want to re-engineer it, make sure it's more efficient, effective, and then, you know, digital is enabling that, right? So um, who do you typically, like, perhaps, you know, what are some stakeholders that companies can work with on the process engineering, re-engineering side? Like, who, who do you think a CIO or a VP of transformation should get on their side? So there's a number of people that we work with at Percadia. First is obviously the individuals who are working in the process themselves. Oftentimes the way we'll start those conversations are, what are the things you go home and complain about when we were in the office? Uh, what are the things you would go to the water cooler and complain about? If I just didn't have to do this, my job would be so much easier. Uh, that's a way I think we found to address some of the fear. A lot of times there are concerns anytime there's a process re-engineering or a digital transformation about what does this mean for me? What does this mean for my job? How will things change? Do I have the skills I need in the future? And oftentimes we'll try to start very simple and just say, all we want to do is what are those things that you just gripe about? You complain about, you say, I, why haven't we fixed this? Like, give us those first, let us start working on those. We involve a cross-functional group in those conversations. It's oftentimes some individuals working on the process. It's some leadership above them. We'll obviously involve some of our counterparts in our uh, development operations group because we want to make sure we do have that technology perspective at the table when we're doing the re-engineering. We'd hate to re-engineer a process and then find out it's 
very difficult or very expensive to then put technology around that. Oftentimes you do need some individuals who maybe aren't as close to the process. They could come from transformation or we do have um, a user experience design group as well that could look at things and say, hey, I, I see why you do steps A through F. But with a little bit different perspective, we could actually go from A to D and then E and F uh, and roll that out. So uh, we'll try to get cross-functional groups together, have some workshops uh, to map out the current state, understand what the pain points are, translate those into potential opportunities, do some prioritization of those opportunities, and then ultimately turn that into a backlog uh, that we can give to a scrum team from a technology standpoint, but also continue to have transformation work very closely with the operations team to make sure we're putting in place some process changes so we can actually get the value from our technology. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, you, earlier you had mentioned having an offshore operation, Ber you know, Berkadia has an offshore, offshore operation in India. Um, you know, what is the, tell us a little bit about that operation. What are some successes perhaps you can highlight some challenges or pivots you've made with that operation? So our offshore operation is absolutely a competitive differentiator for Berkadia. And there's a couple of reasons for that. First is the obvious, uh, which is there is some cost advantage for sure. But more important, the advantage that it brings to us, I think is an access to a much greater talent pool. And it also allows us to have near 24 seven operations. So I'll give you a couple of examples. In our offshore group, we have a large support um, organization for our servicing group. We also have some support for our investment sales and mortgage banking around financial processing. And we have a very large innovation group with a lot of programmers, software engineers, uh, et cetera. And so if you think about uh, setting technology aside, what used to happen uh, at Bercadia was that a client would say, I'm interested in potentially selling or potentially refinancing a property. They would send across the information we need to get that started and say it was six o'clock and the analyst was out of the office. That email would sit until 8 a.m. the next morning when that analyst comes back in and gets started. We've put in place processes where we can now route that work to India. We can actually have the first draft of that financial analysis completed and it can be returned so the U.S. analyst can look at that at eight in the morning, make some modifications, give that to the mortgage banker who'll do some additional modifications and call the client say by you know, noon, two in the afternoon, whereas that would have taken a full day or two days in the past. Same thing from an engineering standpoint, we have scrum teams both in the US, we have scrum teams that are in India. They're working together. US team shuts down for the day. India team picks up in a few hours codes. They shut down, the US team can pick up. And we've really found that we can actually have almost 24 hours coverage and just keep things moving forward. Uh, in addition to the fact, let's be honest, there's a lot of very highly qualified, highly talented individuals that have the experiences that we need to help support our servicing and mortgage banking groups, as well as access to a very large technology pool uh, that we can pull from. And I, I don't think we could have nearly the size of organization or the velocity of work uh, without that uh, office being part of Arcadia. That is such a great story. And you know how you talked about that being a competitive edge for Arcadia. That's, that's pretty awesome how you're able to leverage that. Um, now, you know, you, you've got some lots of uh, innovation initiatives, you know, with the incubators and innovation labs and things like that. Tell us the ro role of innovation. Tell us about the role of innovation in digital transformation. What sort of outcomes can innovation drive, you know? 
there's a number of outcomes that I wouldn't say could drive. I would say actually are driving today in Bricadia. And so, uh, you know, I'll, I'll first reference a point that you made earlier, which is it's really easy to put technology around your existing processes. When you do that, yes, you might get a 5% or a 10% performance improvement, but you're really missing an opportunity to potentially get a 30, 40, 50% performance improvement. And so I think innovation can really bring the lens on how do we do things differently? Let's be honest, we're never gonna be as deep into the details as someone who does that process every single day. However, once we learn about that process, we can start introducing new ideas. And those ideas don't always come from within the four walls of Arcadia. We mentioned our startup accelerator program, other engagements that we have with individual companies and individuals outside of Arcadia. That really brings a lot of new ideas in and innovation can be the nexus of both internal ideas coming up from within, ideas coming from the outside, putting those together, figuring out which ones do we wanna pursue, how do we prioritize and then working to execute on those. And some of the things that we've done at Bercadia is from an innovation standpoint is with some of the data analytics tools we've developed, we are actively driving new clients to Bercadia in terms of new listings in the investment sales space, as well as re, uh, new loans and financing that we do in mortgage banking. We're driving some of the scale efficiencies that we talked about where individuals are now able to do much more work because we're able to eliminate some of the lower end processing type tasks from their uh, purview. And so ultimately our revenue uh, is going up and we're helping to scale our costs at the same time, which is a true win-win for everyone at Bercadia. That's awesome. So now, obviously lots of ideas coming in, solutions with this, you know, incubators and, you know, innovation labs and, you know, startup accelerators. Now, how does a leader like you prioritize, right? Do you use any frameworks, tools, what are some, you know, how do you guys figure out which one to, you know, take forward first? It's a big challenge and it's not easy. <laughs> I'll be honest. The good news is there are no shortage of ideas at Arcadia. The bad news is, as you pointed out, we don't have unlimited resources. I don't think we have a silver bullet. Some of the things that we try to do is maintain a balance between what we call sustaining innovation which is making our current business model and our current business processes better and more effective and still investing in disruptive innovation or maybe bigger picture things that would actually change how uh, we interact with our clients or potentially change how we execute our transactions. Right. Uh, and that is very much an art. Uh, we try to make it as much of a science as we can. You know, we, we try to make very database decisions. We collect a lot of information about the current process, the current turnaround time, the current cost of support, the current pain points we experience, how big are those pain points to either internal customers or potentially to external customers, uh, synthesize that down, uh, look at the resources required to execute on that, what's the time frame, the feasibility, the risk, um, and ultimately come up with, you know, is this something that we think needs done now or is this something that can wait? Um, we do try to minimize the amount of, um, what I would call kind of big bang commitments we make up front because we really do embrace the ability to pilot. And so what we'll do is even if we have something that we think is a really great idea, it might require a lot of resources. Those decisions sometimes, even if they're not irreversible, they might take 12, 18, 24 months to actually bear fruit. And if they don't bear fruit, you spend a lot of time and effort in an area that's not gonna work out. And so we do very actively pilot things. Um, you know, I struggle to think of any big initiative 
that we've done at Percadia where we have not set up a small pilot yeah. and said, let's put together either some technology resources, some business resources, let's test this, let's set some very clear criteria yeah. and let's run this for 90 days, 120 days, see what happens, come back, look at it and try to make a very objective decision. Was, wow, this is really successful. We're going to put a lot more resources or this didn't quite turn out the way we thought. Is the idea not what we think it is? Was there something we did in the proof of concept that caused it to not be successful and really understand why yeah. some of these things maybe didn't work before we make those big resource commitments? Uh, but ultimately, you know, it is a big challenge. Uh, and so we, we have, you know, cross-functional groups which meet and talk about how we want to scope a pilot, look at the results of pilots, um, make those capital allocation decisions in terms of resources. Uh, but it, it is a big challenge, and, and I can say that, um, you know, I don't think there's anyone at Percadia who would say uh, we figured that out yet, but it is something we're constantly trying to get better on, and, and it's necessary. It, it, there's so many ideas out there. It is very easy that you get spread so thin, you just cannot get anything done. Yeah. Uh, and, and so that kind of shotgun approach, um, yeah. you know, we found is not successful. You really need to concentrate in some areas, but try to be as informed and fact-based as possible when you're making those decisions. So quick follow up on that, right? You're talking about pilots, you know, perhaps POCs and POVs you guys undertake. Do you guys typically run them parallel? Is it sequential one after the other? Like what has worked for you guys? We normally have a couple going at once. Okay. Uh, it's pretty rare that we would just have one underway. Uh, we've got a number of them underway right now. And the good news is that given the diversity of our business, we can usually have a few going in different lines of business and, and therefore have a good view of what the innovation and what the future looks like in the different aspects of our business. Um, I would encourage individuals who maybe aren't running POCs or POVs today that uh, one, you should definitely start doing it. Uh, and number two, though, don't just rush into it. Don't say, okay, great, we've got a good idea. We'll put some resources, check in in six months, see what happened but really try to define upfront, what are we trying to accomplish? What does success look like? It is very easy to fall into a trap of, well, it's getting better, we're seeing improvement, we're seeing more adoption, but it's slow, it's incremental, uh, and it almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You're much more objective at the beginning before you actually get into it and it becomes a sunk cost. Set those criteria and then uh, be checking in periodically on how, how it's going and, and at the end, make sure you're, you're very fact-based if every one of your POCs is successful, you're probably doing something wrong. Um, you know, it's okay uh, in the innovation space, it's okay that some things fail. You know, we learned, we pivot, we adapt, we adjust, we didn't spend resources on something that's not gonna work. Uh, that's okay, but I, I think there are some people out there that either rush into these things just uh, to get started and then they're not actually sure if it's successful or uh, even worse, every POC they do is a success and that just creates a big bottleneck later on because you simply don't have enough resources to fund every initiative that you'd like to do. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, let's talk about the resources, right? I mean, when you're running a lot of this innovation type experiments, uh, you know, companies can, and perhaps even like internal, you know, digital transformation projects as well. Uh, you know, companies often face a dilemma on, should I hire this talent in-house or partner with, with a, you know, vendor or, you know, someone, um, you know, what are some guidelines you've followed and, you know, that's worked for you to making a in making a determination between hiring talent in-house versus working with partners? There's a few things that we consider before we make that decision. And we do have a lot of in-house talent. We also do work with some external vendors as well. 
One of those is really understanding what is this skill set that you're looking for? How long do you think you're going to need that skill set for? It's very easy to go find a consulting firm or a contractor who has a particular skill set. But as I mentioned earlier, when you're thinking about maybe third party software versus internal software, really think through how long are we going to need that skill set? Is that skill set leverageable in other areas for other things we're developing? How long would it take us internally to track that skill set? Couldn't we retain that skill set by keeping that individual busy with exciting projects that are motivating for them from a career development perspective? What does their career path look like um, before you make that decision? Um, what we have found is oftentimes we might need a particular skill set because we're developing a, a, a feature of an application that's only relevant to that business, that feature. We don't see the ability to keep that person busy with that particular programming language or that particular skill set or that particular architecture background for the long run. In those cases, it probably makes sense to go and find a contractor to fix that point problem. Uh, and then they go on to their next contract or they, they go on to the next consulting assignment after that. In cases where we feel, hey, this is core to what we're doing. It's gonna be core to the application. It's gonna be core to other things we wanna develop in the long run. Yes, maybe it's gonna take longer to go hire a person and develop them and bring them in than just going with a, a third party or contractor. But we're constantly going to be either bringing in contractors or dealing with some of the instability that contractors may bring if we go down that route. So let's actually have this be an interim employee. And then we also have hybrids where maybe we really do need to get something started. We're going to go out, we're going to bring on a, a team of contractors. And we've done that recently. We've brought on a team of contractors, very skilled in a particular area. We've made it very clear as part of that contract, we're hiring some talent and we need those contractors as part of the contract, not only to build what we've asked them to build, but train and, and prepare our team to actually take that on once we leave. So we now have that knowledge in house. Um, and again, I, I think sometimes it, it's easy to just say, well, let's go out and, and, and bring in some contractors or third parties. And then six or nine months down the road, you realize, oh, wow, we should have done things on <laughs> a hybrid approach or thought through things uh, before we've done that because we're, we're either going to lose this skill set and then what do we do? Or suddenly those contractors have almost become permanent employees <laughs> because we're going to need them for three or four years now. Yeah, makes sense. Now, um, kind of like the last question, you know, perhaps to general advice type, uh, you know, response from you. As a digital leader, you know, what would you say to companies that are playing a little bit of the waiting game? Oh, this whole thing is going to blow over. Things are going to go back to normalcy. Yes, in some fashion, you know, a lot of ways, yes. Um, but what is, why now? You know, why should transformation be so important and critical now? I would say they need to figure out how to get started and how to get in the game. That doesn't mean going out and hiring 50 software engineers, hiring 20 folks to work in transformation, just blindly launching a, a digital transformation effort. But they do need to get started in thinking through how is digital going to impact their business? How's it going to impact their customers? What are emerging needs that can be met through technology? What existing needs can be met through technology? And how do we really prepare our business for the future? If you haven't already gotten started, honestly, you're probably five years behind. Um, and that gap is only going to grow over time. You know, technology very much is a business of scale. Uh, it really is a network effects and, and that the more successful uh, you are and the longer you're at it, generally it's, it's a snowball rolling downhill and it's very, very difficult to catch up uh, with the efforts. And so I would say you really need to sit down and as a senior leadership team, have some tough conversations about where do you see 
your particular industry headed? How does digital play into that? What sort of disruption may be coming? What sort of partnerships might you be able to strike to help accelerate your progress? How can you actually engage with customers? We've had great success going with customers and doing joint discovery work, actually taking things which previously maybe had been uh, internal technology tools and starting to allow some of our customers to actually access and use those and they kind of help us to help you uh, standpoint. Um, and if you're not doing those sorts of things, I, I think it, it's becoming an existential question and, and you should really think about you know, how much longer your business is gonna survive. Yeah, Eric, I certainly enjoyed this conversation. Lots of golden uh, nuggets there uh, from you and uh, wish uh, you and Barcadia the best in uh, all those digital transformation initiatives that you have under, underway. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Excellent.